Great to be here. My name is uh, Dave. I'm uh, one of the pastors at Mountain View uh, over at Main Campus, and it's been a few months since I've been here to share with you, so it's great to be back. As you know, or maybe you don't know, Pastor Ken is on a sabbatical for a couple of months, and you may be wondering, what on earth is a sabbatical? How come somebody gets a couple months off? What do they need that for? Yeah, no question it would be awesome if we all got to have uh, breaks like that as a part of our uh, careers, but there is a, a very important reason, a number of them, why we have created this space every seven years in full-time pastoral ministry at Mountain View to have a sabbatical for a few months. No surprise to you that a pastor's work is to invest in the spiritual lives of the people that he leads, right? Makes sense. Uh, And of course, that should also include investing in our own spiritual lives, and you would expect that. My goodness, you're a pastor. You better spend some time praying in God's Word and And we do do that. But to have a season set apart to really focus on growing individually in our walk with Jesus Christ is a really unique opportunity and allows us to sort of fill our tanks again for another season of pouring out. And so when you view a sabbatical like that, you can see how that's a great investment for long-term ministry. And we feel like that's really paid off at Mountain View. Pastor Fred and myself are both here since the beginning, and Mountain View is celebrating its 25th anniversary this coming May. So we've been around for a while, and sometimes you can just take that for granted, but that's actually pretty unusual. And uh, it's our hope and prayer that Pastor Ken's going to hit 25 years and beyond in his own ministry here at Sunnyside, and in order to do that, some seasons away to grow and recharge are necessary. And so that's, that's part of why we do these sabbaticals. But anyways, glad to be here to fill in. We're in the book of Esther in the Old Testament. I want to encourage you to turn there or find it on your phone. Uh, The book of Esther is a small book in the Old Testament. If you need to go to the front of your Bible and look in the index uh, or table of contents, contents, you'll find that name Esther there, and you can turn to that first chapter. If you don't already use the New Living Translation when we're together, I encourage you to do that. That's the translation that we use up for the front, and it's it's nice, I think, and helpful to have the same translation. It's fairly straightforward and easy to read read and helpful for you. So I, I want to commend that New Living Translation to you. I do want to encourage you to, to sign up for life groups as well. And uh, as the video said, and uh, Alpha, if you're new, the recovery ministry, regeneration, if you're dealing with some addiction of some kind, and a variety of other options. They're really awesome. Also want to do a shout out to Man Camp. It's coming up in a month. And so if you're a man, you should sign up for that retreat. It's spectacular. It's going to be really great. <clears throat> Uh, I'm not uh, Pastor Ken, other than we have the, you know, share the same barber, but uh, I was thinking if, you know, I should really work at, at, at walking rapidly back and forth and bouncing on my toes and talking really fast like Pastor Ken, but I, I can't do that. I get tired out. So I kind of stand here. I don't move around as much, and, and I don't talk quite as fast, which probably the Spanish translation, they're like, praise God, Whew, a little easier, because <laughs> uh, PK, he's fast in his words per minute, right? You know that. It's really great to be here. Um, the, the story of, of Esther is a story of reversals and sudden changes. It's what makes storytelling really good, and, and I'm going to explain that this isn't just a story, this is also history, but this is a story where there's all kinds of sudden changes and reversals of fortune that make it a very dramatic uh, story. Pretty much any good drama, any good movie that you've watched has a bunch of reversals. It's what makes movies exciting. What's going to happen next? How is the main character going to get out of this impossible jam at the end, right? And there's this sudden turn or somebody shows up who's dead or whatever, or you thought they were dead. 
and the movie changes around. I'm reaching back a ways, and, and I'm a dad with, with kids, and so when my kids were younger, lots of kids' movies, and uh, we watched all the Toy Story movies. If you haven't, you should anyways. Toy Story is just good, period. You don't have to be a, a kid to watch that. But in Toy Story 3, I don't know if you remember towards the end of the movie, they're at this uh, garbage facility and all the toys have fallen into this trash incinerator fire thing and they're all sliding down towards this fire. Does anybody remember that scene? And you know, you're expecting them to figure out some way to get out and they're crawling and they're trying to get out, but then there's this, all of a sudden they start to realize there's no way for them to get out and their faces all get serious and they start to reach across and hold hands, and they're all going to die. And I'm watching the movie with my kids, like, what is going on? You know, children's movies are not supposed to get that dramatic. You know, I'm tearing up already because I was just like, I'm slightly traumatized. Like, what? You know, you should chill, kids. Let's not. You know, because for a split second you're thinking they can't just let them all burn in an incinerator. That would be horrible. There's these little fuzzy characters. I don't know if you remember these fuzzball characters that spent their whole life in those. Um, in those toy games where you put a coin in and then you have a claw that comes down and tries to pick them up. Anyways, they managed to get this huge machine working, which is basically a big giant claw. Remember when they would say, the claw, you know? And they rescue all the toys at the last minute and save them. So they're okay, so you're not traumatized, you don't have to worry about that. And I've spoiled the movie for you, I guess, but every good drama has that kind of rescue reversal uh, at the end. Every good novel that you've read that's a a cliffhanger. We love that kind of action. We want that to happen in our own lives. You know, as you were snoozing through the Super Bowl, you were thinking, it'd be great if there was like an interception or something to make this game entertaining, right? Some kind of reversal to get you engaged in that sporting event. That's what goes on at, at all kinds of different levels in the book of Esther. I want to give you a little bit of background for when this happens. It's important for understanding the whole story over the next number of weeks. The events happen about 500 years prior to the birth of Jesus. They concern the nation of Israel. These are the Jewish people, right? And if you know the story of the Bible at all, you know that God gave them this land called Israel, and it's still, or it's again there today on the shores of the Mediterranean. And they were, at a certain point, taken into captivity by the Babylonian Empire, right? And this was the sort of the global empire of the day. And they destroyed and wiped out the nation as it had exi existed and took a bunch of Jewish people and deported them into Babylon and they settled there. And they had lived there for decades and decades. And then the Babylonian Empire was itself overthrown by the Persian Empire. And so they became the next world power. And the first Persian king, his name was Cyrus, and he actually allowed the Jewish people to go back to Israel to rebuild their homeland. And the story of them going back and rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem and their temple are told in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, which are located just in front of Esther in your Bible, and that's why they're there, because they're the previous big events. But it wasn't all of the Jewish people who went back to Israel. A bunch of them stayed in Persia, right? They had grown up there for generations, right? They had kids and grandkids and settled down and had businesses, and so they didn't leave. And the book of Esther is the story of those Jews who didn't leave, who stayed in the Persian Empire, and what became of them. Spoiler alert, 
Esther is going to become queen of Persia by some astonishing circumstances, and she's going to save her people. Right, so she's the, the heroine of the book, hence it's named after her. We're just going to be in chapter one today. Esther doesn't even come into the picture. She's not even mentioned, but this is going to be the precursor. We're going to find out how it is that the, the opening for queen came about uh, through a series of interesting circumstances. Another th- odd thing about Esther is that God's never mentioned in this book. It's the only book in the Bible where God's name is never used. So this is a great book for your skeptical non-Christian friend to come in church and hear a message about. You can say, you know what, we're talking about a book in the Bible that doesn't even mention God. You should come check it out. There's no way they can say that God's being shoved down your throat because (laughs) he's not even mentioned in the book. And yet he's at work behind the scenes. And we'll see how that's true today and in the subsequent weeks to come. So let's read the story starting in chapter 1 in the book of Esther starts like this. These events happened in the days of King Xerxes, who reigned over 127 provinces stretching from India to Ethiopia. At that time, Xerxes ruled his empire from his royal throne at the fortress of Susa. In the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials. He invited all the military officers of Persia and Medea, as well as the princes and nobles of the provinces. The celebration lasted 180 days. <clears throat> Excuse me. A tremendous display of the opulent wealth of his empire and the pomp and splendor of his majesty. When it was all over, the king gave a banquet for all the people from the greatest to the least who were in the fortress of Susa. It lasted for seven days and was held in the courtyard of the palace garden. The courtyard was beautifully decorated with white cotton curtains and blue hangings which were fastened with white linen cords and purple ribbons to silver rings embedded in marble pillars. Gold and silver couches stood on the mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and other costly stones. Drinks were served in gold goblets of many designs, and there was an abundance of royal wine, reflecting the king's generosity. By edict of the king, no limit was placed on the drinking, for the king had instructed all his palace officials to serve each man as much as he wanted. At the same time, Queen Vashti gave a banquet for the women in the royal palace of King Xerxes. So you get the scene, right? This powerful king of Persia is throwing a huge party. Lasts 180 days, culminating with this seven-day banquet. And the wine is flowing freely. On the seventh day of the feast continuing, when King Xerxes was in high spirits because of the wine, he told the seven eunuchs who attended him, and you can read the seven names there, (laughs) to bring Queen Vashti to him with the royal crown on her head. He wanted the nobles and all the other men to gaze on her beauty, for she was a very beautiful woman. But when they conveyed the king's order to Queen Vashti, she refused to come. This made the king furious, and he burned with anger. He immediately consulted with his wise advisors who knew all the Persian laws and customs, for he always asked their advice. The names of these men were... And there's another list of names for you. Seven nobles of Persia and Medea. They met with the king regularly and held the highest positions in the empire. What must be done to Queen Vashti, the king demanded? What penalty does the law provide for a queen who refuses to obey the king's orders properly sent through his eunuchs? Memekin answered the king and his nobles, Queen Vashti has wronged not only the king, but also every noble and citizen throughout your empire. 
Women everywhere will begin to despise their husbands when they learn that Queen Vashti has refused to appear before the king. Before this day is out, the wives of all the king's nobles throughout Persia and Medea will hear that the queen, what the queen did and will start treating their husbands in the same way. There will be no end to their contempt and anger. So if it please the king, we suggest that you issue a written decree, a law of the Persians and Medes that cannot be revoked. It should order that Queen Vashti will be forever banished from the presence of King Xerxes, and that the king should choose another queen more worthy than she. When this decree is published throughout the king's vast empire, husbands everywhere, whatever their rank, will receive proper respect from their wives. The king and his nobles thought this made good sense, so he followed Memekin's counsel. He sent letters to all parts of the empire, to each province in its own script and language, proclaiming that every man should be ruler of his own home and should say whatever he pleases. <laughs> so we'll start with King Xerxes. I've got there in your outline, King Xerxes wasted leadership. It's meant to be a bit of a play there. You can guess why, right? I hope so. King of the world, basically, the most powerful man on the planet, having a huge banquet. It wasn't just to have a party for months and months. He was trying to impress a bunch of people because he wanted to invade Greece and take the Greeks over and add Greece to his kingdom. And we know that because there's a famous historian Herodotus who wrote a book called The Persian Wars, which is an excellent piece of ancient history, and he talks about Xerxes and his attempts to conquer the Greeks and his failure to do so. When this book was written, the book of Esther, Xerxes was already gone from the scene. He'd already been defeated. So it's the first irony and reversal of the book that he's having this huge banquet, getting everybody ready to show his power and say, join me in defeating the Greeks. And everybody knows that he failed miserably in actually defeating the Greeks and that they instead defeated him. The wine's flowing freely. The king's drunk in high spirits, as the Bible says. <laughs> And he decides, I want to show off my queen to everybody, show them how beautiful she is. So he summons the queen to come to put on her crown, and we assume uh, dress spectacularly and come out and show off her beauty to everybody. And the queen has the nerve to say no. <laughs> right? She defies the king. We'll talk a little bit more about that and her challenge. This is her Me Too moment. I am not going to be treated like an object for all of your drunken guests to Google at, Google at me. Right? He's furious, right? He's an angry drunk now. Calls his advisors together. What should I do? And they collectively give him some terrible advice to blow up what's a marital spat into a national crisis, right? You need to inform everybody. Otherwise, this is going to spread amongst the whole kingdom, and they ensure that it's going to spread amongst the whole kingdom by actually writing this letter out to everybody and communicating it to everybody. So they completely overreact. And he's just this bumbling fool of a king, and that's kind of how his character is going to look throughout the course of this book. And it's good for us to remember, right, that God sees powerful people in a very different way than we often do. It's also good for us to just take a moment and think, think about what the damage that alcohol does here, right? I'm not saying that if they weren't drunk, everything would have worked out fine, but it doesn't help. People act stupid when they drink too much. Have you ever noticed that before? <laughs> right? Have you ever been 
at a party where the volume, it just gets louder and louder and louder and people talk more and more idiotically as they drink more and more. That happens all the time. That's happening here. That's part of the reason why the Bible commands us not to get drunk with wine. Right? It doesn't say you can't drink. It just says don't drink to excess. That's a command for us to follow as followers of Jesus. Right? For lots of different reasons. At least one of them is. Because you know what? You make less stupid decisions when you're not drunk. <laughs> Some of us make dumb decisions when we're sober. We've all done that too. <laughs> but we tend to make more when alcohol's involved. Right? And we know that. At Mountain View, for our staff and for our leadership, we actually ask uh, folks to abstain from alcohol altogether, right? Not because the Bible says that. Like I said, the Bible says don't get drunk with alcohol, with wine. That's what it says. But we encourage people just to abstain as a whole, and one of the reasons why is because we've had a recovery ministry for many, many years, and I'm so excited that after a pause that's been far too long, we finally have a recovery ministry starting again with regeneration. I'm just very um, amped about that. I know that's going to have a huge impact in the lives of so many people. So we've always had lots of folks at church who are wrestling with addictions, right? And the addictions that have controlled their lives, destroyed their lives. And they're certainly not just trying to avoid getting drunk. They're, they're abstaining totally because that's part of what you do in order to be in recovery, right? And so we were like, it makes so much sense for us as leaders to do the same thing that the people who are in recovery are doing and to stand with them in solidarity and say, we're going to stand with you and we're not going to participate in that either so that we can be an example in some way. And it really does help and it really does encourage people. And so that's part of how we practice it at Mountain View. Again, we don't impose that, but for staff and leadership, we say, look, let's choose together to abstain completely. Part of why, too, comes from Scripture. Look at these two verses here. I've got them up on the screen for you. Pray with an alert mind, it says in Colossians. And then in 2 Timothy, he's advising him. He says, keep a clear mind in every circumstances, particularly about prayer in Colossians, right? An alert mind. And then in Timothy, in all circumstances, a clear mind. You can't be buzzed and be alert and clear in your mind. You know that, right? You can't be, you know, puffing marijuana and have an alert mind and a clear mind. It doesn't work. You know? So this is part of the reasoning, re reasoning, right? The Bible doesn't always go into all kinds of detailed lists about all the little things that it's not wise to do. It says things like this. Have an alert mind. right? Be clear-minded. Oh, okay, I'm just going to do things that help me have a clear and alert mind. I'm not going to do things that impair me from being able to have a clear and alert mind. Maybe you've never connected those scriptures as being relevant to this, this whole topic, so that's why I want to give them to you as a, as a tool, maybe just to remind you. Yeah, you know, I want to be that kind of person with an alert and a clear mind and take the necessary steps in order to keep it that way. And of course, Xerxes is a terrible example of what happens when you don't. Then there's Queen Vashti. I, I say she's someone of modest integrity, right? She demonstrates some modesty and she's got some integrity. So she stands against the king and says, forget it, I am not coming to be a sex object for your drunken party. And she infuriates the king. We don't know exactly why she did that. We don't know if they had a long history, right, as, you know, an embattled husband and wife and queen and king. We just know that she refused him in this situation. We don't, we don't 
have more detail than what Esther gives us. But I think it's reasonable to understand that she knew what was going on at that party and was like, I am not going to be a part of that, right? To me, I think that that's, that's inferred by how the author writes the story because he's highlighting all the free-flowing wine that's going on there. And the attitude that the king and his advisors have towards uh, women, and particularly with regards to the queen as the wife of the king, is really interesting. You notice the kind of language that they use there, right? And I want to talk a little bit about how that applies to marriage. The king asks, what penalty does the law provide for a queen who refuses to obey the king's orders? He doesn't refer to her as his wife. She's just the queen, right? Women everywhere will begin to despise their husbands. There'll be no end to their contempt and anger, the counselors say. Every man should be ruler of his own home and should say whatever he pleases. They continue on in verse 22. This is a really ungodly view of marriage that's revealed as part of the culture in the Persian Empire. It's not unusual for the ancient world or the Persian Empire or the secular world in general, right? We don't value and treat marriage well, and we typically have broken relationships between husband and wife. (coughs) Excuse me. It reflects what happened in the fall. When Adam and Eve fell in the garden... God pronounced curses upon them, explaining, here's what's going to happen as a result of sin. And he lists a bunch of bad things that are going to happen, right? And one of them refers to marriage, and it's in Genesis chapter 3, verse 16. God says this to Eve particularly. He says, you will desire to control your husband, but he will rule over you. This to Eve. Eve, you're going to try and control Adam. Adam's going to rule over you. And this is a subversion of the way God had designed them to be, right? We find in the book of Ephesians, the apostle Paul teaching about marriage as God designed it, and he compares the husband and wife relationship to the relationship that Jesus has with his church. And he tells husband, husbands, you need to love your wives sacrificially as Jesus loved his church and laid down his life for her. So that's how he's explaining to husbands. Husbands, this is how you're going to lead, by sacrificially loving your spouses, your wives. And then to wives, he says, wives, submit to your husbands in all things, even as the church submits to Christ. So in the same way that the church looks to Christ for leadership, Paul says, wives, within your marriage relationship with your husbands, you should honor your husbands and respect their leadership in the same way that the church does to Jesus Christ. That's what we call a complementarian view of marriage, that husband and wife complement each other in their roles. And it's a beautiful picture, right? But it's subverted by the fall and the entrance of sin into the world, and now that submission turns into your desire will be to control your husband, and the husband's servant and sacrificial leadership turns into he will try and rule over you. And there's a conflict that we know of as modern marriage. (laughs) And it's not modern, it's been around for forever. The mentality in Persia is that fallen mentality. And that's what Vashti seems to stand up to and say, I'm not going to play this, I'm not going to play this game anymore. It's a good reminder for us. We've been in this Me Too movement thing for a while, and it's a good thing that 
there's this increasing awareness of the manipulation and abuse of women in all kinds of different circumstances. There's a whole political thing in, uh, about it that's, that's crazy. And the world's always going to abuse something good that's happening. But there is something good about that. And the church should lead in that in terms of how we treat each other as men and women, period, and particularly how we treat each other as husbands and wives within marriage. That we do so with honor and respect and that we don't objectify one another. And particularly as men, because it's our tendency, even as it is here, to objectify women as sexual objects, right? That happens all the time, and we need to root that out of our thinking and out of our talking, too. I'm surprised. I hear often even pastors, they'll talk about their, their hot wife. And I'm just like, why do you say that? <laughs> like, that's inappropriate. You shouldn't talk about your wife like that because hot right away has a sexual connotation, doesn't it? You know it does as a guy. And I don't just think that. I ask my wife, that sounds a little weird to me. Does that sound weird to you? She says, yes, don't ever talk about me like that, you know? Not in public, like bragging to somebody else. That's ridiculous. You know, how you talk and bless each other with compliments about your sexuality as husband and wife within the confines of your marriage, awesome. But in public, it's not good. It's not good for your marriage relationship, how your wife feels. It's not good for communicating that in front of other women to say, are you standing there deciding who's hot and who's not? What? Right? That right away objectifies. So we need to root that kind of thinking and that kind of talking out of our own language as Christians. And I think we have a great thing to offer to the world in being models of that within the church and how we relate to each other as men and women and husbands and wives. Let me wrap up with a couple of overarching themes, then the worship team's going to come. We're going to experience some great prayer and some prophetic blessings today. Let's wrap up with these ideas. First is that God's always at work, right? Exercising His rule in this world through Christ. God is always at work. Psalm chapter 2 is a great psalm that talks about the kings of the world, the nations coming together to plot their schemes to try and overthrow the Lord. Meanwhile, it says the Lord sits in heaven and he laughs. <laughs> He's like, what are you guys trying to do? I'm God. I'm in control, not you. Not you, Xerxes. You think you're so great, you're going to pull everybody together and defeat the Greeks. No, you're not. You're going to lose. So you're not part of my, it's not part of my plan for you to win, right? Even the greatest, most powerful person in the world is absolutely at the mercy of the power and sovereignty of God Almighty, right? God's always at work in our world. We call it divine providence. That was a, is a phrase that we used to always use as Christians, divine providence, right? That God's at work, especially if it's like we can't see exactly what's happening, but we know it's working. There's even a whole city called Providence, Rhode Island. It's from that idea of divine providence, that God's in control of all history. Folks, when we're walking with the Lord and doing His will, we are always on the right side of history. Always. Why? Because our God's the God of history. History is what He writes, not us. The idea that somehow we're on the wrong side, I always think, is just hilarious. (laughs) It doesn't matter what side we're on, as long as we're on God's side. He's the one who decides what the, he decides what the right side of history is or is not. Often, God is at work behind the scenes. He's always at work. Sometimes we see it plainly. Often, we don't see how God's at work. That's certainly what's going on in Esther. God is at work orchestrating things 
and preparing a plan to rescue his people. And part of that includes opening up the queenship, and he wants to use a very unlikely girl named Esther to be his deliverer so that his glory can be displayed. We see that she's going to become a type of Christ figure, even though there's no description. But just the things that are happening and the way they happen and the kind of decisions that are made, you right away see the reflection of Jesus Christ, the ultimate Messiah, the ultimate Savior. And there's no time where there was a greater reversal of fortune than at the cross. There's no time when God was more at work behind the scenes than at the cross, right? Where the people in the circumstance, and certainly Satan and all his powers, thought that they were on the right side of history, killing the Son of God. God's plan was being defeated. Then there's the ultimate reversal of all history when Jesus rises from the dead and demonstrates that the whole time this was his plan. He wasn't just dying. He's dying for the sins of the world. He's dying for each one of our sins to make us have an opportunity to be right with God, right? For the light to go on for us like it did for Ivan in that Bible study to realize Jesus died for me and changed history forever. God's always at work, often behind the scenes. Then I say underneath there, right, that believing that God is working behind the scenes, it takes faith. It takes faith to believe. Okay, God, everything seems to be going terrible. I don't know how this is, but I trust you that you're in charge. You're going through circumstances like that maybe right now or you have in the past. You will in the future, right, where you just don't see what's going on. It does take faith to believe that God's still working. But I want to encourage you in this and challenge you if you're skeptical. It takes more faith for you to believe that there's nothing behind the scenes, that there is no God, that everything's just happening by blind chance, right? By undirected evolutionary forces, right? Without conscience, without moral uh, authority and integrity, there is no greater power in the world. It's just us and things just happen. That takes more faith to walk in that. Because if you do, then you certainly can't complain about anything. What's to complain about? Stuff just happens, right? So what if it's good or bad? Who decides anything's good or bad? So, so what if it's just or it's unjust? Who decides anything's just or unjust? That makes no sense unless there's a moral authority. Without that moral authority, nothing matters. Who cares? Whatever happens, you live long, you live short, die young, die old, big deal, you know? Just do whatever, everybody just do whatever you want. Who cares? But nothing works like that. And nobody actually lives like that. (laughs) Right? They get frustrated because things aren't working out, because things shouldn't be like this. It should be better. Why? That only makes sense if there's a God. And that God has a moral authority. We have challenges as Christians. Right? We have to answer people's skeptical questions. Hey, if God's so good and he's at work all the time, how come so many terrible things happen in the world? That's a very profound and serious question that deserves a good answer. But if there's no God, (laughs) then there's no good or evil and nothing matters anyways. So who cares? Right? But nobody actually lives like that, even though philosophically they might want to defend themselves as an atheist. When it comes down to it, they can't. So be encouraged. Yes, it takes faith to believe God's at work behind the scenes. It takes more faith to believe that there's nothing behind the scenes. Invite the worship team to come on up. We want to lead us in some songs. We want to worship the Lord together. And today's a great 
day where we're going to do a unique kind of uh, prayer ministry. We always have prayer ushers at the front, right, to, to pray with you for things that are going on in your life. Today, we are practicing what we call prophetic blessing. And in this scenario, it's a little different. You just come and ask them to pray for you, and they're just going to bless you with a word from the Lord. We're talking about the Lord working behind the scenes. This is one of those times where we're inviting the Holy Spirit to kind of come out from behind the scenes and share a little bit about what His heart is for us, right? Now, they're not going to tell you what to do with the rest of your life, you know. It's not like that. They're just going to share an encouraging word. In the Bible, prophecy is meant to build up and encourage the body of Christ. And so they're going to share something from God's heart for you to build you up and encourage you. So I want to encourage you just to take the step of faith to come and let someone bless you in that way. It might be like, wow, I've never done that before. This is a little weird. This is a little awkward. Great. So what? Give it a go. <laughs> right? It's going to be a blessing and encouraging. That, that much I, I guarantee. But it take, does take a step of faith to come and allow the prayer team who have been praying and asking the Lord to speak to them to minister to you and bless you. So I encourage you to do that. Let's stand together and let's pray.